Our next retreat is finally here. It's called Adventures in Energetics, and it's happening November 8th to the 14th, 2024 in Boquete, Panama. This seven-day, six-night retreat in the beautiful cloud forest of Panama is going to be a unique experience. This program is a not-for-beginners retreat. And what I mean by that is you will actually have to fill out an application before you will be accepted to be able to register for the program because we are going to be doing more advanced level energetics and I need to make sure that everybody who comes is actually ready for the work. We will be doing a Kundalini awakening. We will be doing group visioning process called a spiritual canoe. We will be doing daily presence practices and working on expanding our energy. We will be doing daily rituals. This process will be related to specifically the people who are there because in addition to filling out the questionnaire about what your experience is, you're also gonna ask for what it is that you'd like to learn. So part of the curriculum for this is set and part of it will be designed around the desires of the participants. I only have 20 beds available for this retreat, so it will fill up quickly. So this is the time to register. Do not wait. To find out more, go to kellysparta.com forward slash retreat. I look forward to seeing you there. Another blood red sunset and yet another moon face and still another hundred miles to my next resting place. Driving down the road, eyes on the horizon, within my car I'm all but feeling good and feeling strong Knowing that this path I'm on brings me to myself I'm driving Hey now all, this is the Spirit Doctor, Kelly Sparta, and you are listening to Spirit Sherpa, the show that helps and encourages you on your journey to unlock your magic mojo. Joey C is on vacation, but with me again is Jihung Padma. She was with us for the Reclaim the Power of Ritual Healing episode, which was episode 159. So if you missed that one, go back and check it out. You're going to love it. And today she agreed to come back and talk with us about Mahayana Buddhism as part of our Spiritual Path series. Thank you so much for coming back, Jihung. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. So for those who did not hear the original episode, why don't you give us just a brief background of who you are and why I have, have asked you to talk about Buddhism? <laughs> well, I've been a Buddhist chaplain for over 20 years, and my research in Buddhism and healing has spanned about 10 years. My book, uh, Field of Blessings, Ritual and Consciousness in the Work of Buddhist Healers, came out this year. And I recently taught a workshop based on this material at Omega Institute. Uh, there's another retreat that's coming up this month. So just a little bit of a badass in the realm of Buddhism. Yeah. So, but that's why we had you, you on that because you were so wonderful last time. So we're really, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. If you were to describe Mahayana Buddhism, and if, let's, let's start there. There's Buddhism and then there's Mahayana Buddhism. So Mahayana Buddhism came into being around the first century, common era. One of the founders of the Mahayana movement, since it was really a movement in the beginning, it wasn't a separate uh, vehicle. Uh, one, of, one of the core philosophers that, that brought that about was uh, the great Nagarjuna. And Nagarjuna um, came up with the, the doctrine of shanyata um, or emptiness. 
you know, that, that understanding that even the Buddhist teaching is ultimately empty of inherent reality. Any idea that we hold is like a, a stake in the ground to which a donkey could be tied for 10,000 years. So that emptiness means, first of all, everything is impermanent. And then also everything is coming into being together. It's empty of an independent, uh, permanent self. Everything exists in relationship. So in Mahayana Buddhism, we have this image of Indra's net. If we imagine a net with the horizontal threads representing time, the vertical threads representing space, where each of those threads is meeting, there's a crystal which reflects not only every other crystal, but every reflection of every other crystal. So just in that way, we're always coming into being together. We're composed of these reflections of each other. So that's inherently good news um, because it frees us from the kind of loneliness and the isolation of thinking that we have um, to do things on our own. It can be a great relief to realize we're never separate from each other or the world. Wow. So I didn't say anything because I'm like, my brain is trying to go. I, when you said a state, a, a, any idea we hold is a stake in the ground that a donkey could be tied to for 10,000 years. I'm like, I had to think about that. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about that right now. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Because that's so true. Right. It, it's every idea we hold stakes us into this reality that isn't reality. Right. And, and it's that, that piece that, you know, I was I was having this conversation this weekend with uh, I'm, I just came back from the Soul Treat weekend and I was having this conversation about the nature of magic. And and I said, you know, I I am absolutely certain that my current level of energetic awareness and adeptness that I could pull up energy and form something physical out of nothingness if I could just let go of my belief that it can't be done. Right. <laughs> um, I, I absolutely have the energetic ability to do it. I've just I'm, my 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 brain's too attached to reality. And so this this is a really great conversation for right now. And then Indra's web, uh, Indra's web net. Indra's net. Net. I knew I said that wrong. I'm I'm spider girl. So, you know, uh, everything's webs in my head. Yeah. The intersection of space and time and the the reflection piece is is an interesting format to think about these things in. Now, how does this version of Buddhism differ from traditional Buddhism? Well, within Theravadan Buddhism, we could say some of these ideas were already inherently there through the law of what's called Patika Samuppada, which means cause and effect. Patika Samuppada is, is a kind of core understanding of, we could say, karma. Like when this arises, that arises. When this comes to be, that comes to be. When this ceases to exist, that ceases. Um, beyond that, and we, we now through the, this um, shunyata emptiness, we see that even the Dharma, you know, even the Buddhist teachings is also inherently empty. That was, that was the question that Nagarjuna was trying to answer. You know, is the Dharma also inherently empty? Um, yes. And, and so the Heart Sutra... And, and other Mahayana philosophers have kind of elaborated on that. Another core piece of differentiation was the doctrine of skillful means or upaya. And that understanding is that 
Um, the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths four quadrillion different ways so that everyone could hear them in the way they were best suited to. And so that means that we're not tied to the um, historical um, image or the, his the historical text, but we can stay open to it as the Buddhism continues to be um, revealed and continues to evolve. Okay, so there's no, like, like attachment to... Like like in Christianity, the Bible is the word of God, right? Yeah. And so in in Buddhism, it's more about uh, being present to what is and going with the tenets as tenets that you learn and use as a jumping off point. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, you could say that within the Mahayana Buddhism, um, the Buddha is still speaking. Ah, okay. There you go. I love that. That's That's a really beautiful way of putting that. Okay, so... Uh, I was I was talking to somebody over the weekend who had, was of the opinion, and I, I wanted I, I'm excited to talk to you about this because he made an assertion that I wasn't sure whether or not that that was true because I don't have a lot of experience with Buddhism, but uh, he made the assertion over the weekend that uh, Buddhism is more of a practice and less of a religion. Would you agree with that? I can make the argument in either direction. This is actually this is actually a hot topic within Buddhist studies. So from the point of view that it's a practice, why would it just be a practice? Because there's no external object of faith necessarily. You know, that the the teaching certainly is and is focused on um seeing into one's true nature and becoming Buddha. On the other hand, it's true that people in many times and cultures have practiced Buddhism as if it were a religion. So that there is an understanding that one is praying to Buddha, or that there are these, um, sometimes in Tibetan Buddhism, they'll refer to the bodhisattvas as deities, which is not deity with a capital D, um, but really representing a kind of sacred archetype. And so in that case, it does seem that there is a, a kind of external object, although ultimately that external object is dissolved back into the emptiness of space, the emptiness of capital M, mind. Okay. And for our listeners who don't know what a bodhisattva is, would you define that for them? A bodhisattva is an archetype of compassion. It's not a, a being who ever lived, but it represents that capacity for awakening, which is in each one of us. Uh, within Mahayana Buddhism, we have this very courageous and vivid power of the imagination, which gives us um uh, very vivid representations of the Dharma, you know, those those beings that help us to stay focused on our practice. In uh, some other systems, they might be uh, classified as apsaras uh, or um, and that's, helping spirits. Okay. Right. Uh, apsaras in Theravadan Buddhism or Hinduism are helpful spirits that you know, have great freedom of movement and take many forms. So the so the bodhisattvas are are archetypes representing both the compassion within us and the compassion around us, and ultimately the realization that those are not separate from each other. So we we find the bodhisattva within ourselves. Okay, so the bodhisattva is something that is an internally. So when when people. In, I've known a bunch of people in my lifetime who have said that they are bodhisattvas, that they have they have committed to stay 
to to reincarnate over and over again until everyone is freed from this reality sort of concept. Is yeah. that okay? Um, and so that is uh, uh, that is a commitment that they have made through engaging the archetype within. Yes. Now that archetype is also classically projected outside. So we have many images of the bodhisattvas and that helps us, right? Because as human beings, it's useful to have something to look out onto. And ultimately these archetypes are are more powerful than any single one of us, right? They reside in the collective, Um, but we can, we can call upon them. Um, we can uh, take courage and strength uh, from them. And so classically, here uh, I have the image of uh, Jizo Bodhisattva. Jizo it represents that element of compassion that helps those who are crossing over from this life to the next. And I have this on my altar so that when I am chanting for the people who have departed, I can envision Jizo and call upon that power in a way that is more directed than if the statue wasn't there. Is the intercession it, the intercession at the same time is not dependent upon the statue or or uh, dependent upon external things? Yeah, the statue is a focus for your intent. Exactly. It's, yeah. So um, is that am I correct in thinking then if there are different types of bodhisattvas are those sort of if you had to make a, a correlation, would it be kind of like the saints in Catholicism? Would that be sort of, or is it more like the Orishas in Voodoo or the gods and goddesses? Or is is that are those bad uh, 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 you know, sort of correlations? What are they inaccurate? I, I, I'm I'm actually reminded of the song from Rent, Seasons of Love. Uh huh. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. Right. So how many? How do how do you measure love? you know how do you give love a face how do you how do you give it a name so that feels more like the thousand faces of kali concept yeah um yeah so i I always try and correlate things just because it just helps me stitch the world together but um but yeah that that's a that's really a beautiful way of looking at it um so cool um Let's let's go back to the inner and outer pieces because you can find the Buddha within, or you can worship the Buddha Buddha as a religion, um, which you know, as above, so below; as within, so without. It's 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 all the same, right? Um, and and yet, you know, everything is with impermanence, as you've said. So uh, whatever. So so, how do you look at that? If everything is impermanent. And we're doing as within, so without. And you said, well, the Buddha is impermanent. And so the outer world is impermanent. Are we also impermanent? We are also impermanent. That is definitely a truth. So what's the point? Well, um, I would say the point is, what do we do with this precious time that we have? One time um, last spring, when I was in San Diego, I had this precious Uber driver when I was... Uh, coming out of, um, you know, a, a Kaiser permanente. And so we're this, talking about impermanence. That's funny. So yeah. <laughs> so this, this Uber driver, um, the first thing he asks me is, what do you think um, human beings job is? And I said, how can I help you? 
And he said, that's not the job. And then he, he went on to explain what he meant. He said, it's like we're all on this train. The train is one way. You know, we can't get off the train and we can't change the destination. You know, all we can do is make the best of the journey that we have. When, you know, when the train um, is finished, we can't take anything with us. He said, even if we memorize the Quran or some other holy scripture, there's no guarantee we're going to remember that when we've passed. You know, so then what will we do with the, the quality of time that we have? That's our, our playground. That's our secret space. Within Buddhism, uh, when we die, what is the belief system? What's the idea there? Do we cease to exist? Do we come back in a different form? What's that? That's a beautiful question. And, and first of all, I'll give you a Zen answer. So sometime uh, uh, someone asked the Zen master, what happens when I die? And the Zen master said, I don't know. The student said, but you're a Zen master. And the Zen master said, yes, but I'm not a dead Zen master. So ultimately, you know, we are very pragmatic and empirical and basing things on direct experience and Zen. So what happens when you die? I don't know. However, on this, at the same time, within Tibetan Buddhism, there is a kind of map which suggests that when we die, the mind opens up, the consciousness opens up in this really rare way. And we are having a kind of life review upon which we see, you know, all the things, you know, the beautiful things, the challenging things. And out of that, our mind sorts out what is the trajectory that that we're going to follow next to complete our learning. At that time, it's considered that doing um, acts of compassion and kindness and dedicating the merit of that towards the departed person can help them, uh, also sending love and compassion through our meditation practice. Okay. And so uh, you said, how do we complete our learning? Is the assumption in Tibetan Buddhism that we do come back and reincarnate? Yes, but it's a little bit like um, lighting one candle from another. It's not the exact same pl- flame, but it's not altogether different. So, the, right? Right. It's not, it's sort of identical um, permanent soul. If we, uh, one way of thinking of it is it's, it's a stream of consciousness that continues. And when we look at an individual and the collective, what is the relationship between the individual and the collective in Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism? Well, within Mahayana, that's a beautiful question. And within Mahayana Buddhism, there's the Yogacara school of, of Buddhist philosophy, which said that um, in addition to the, 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 the levels of consciousness that we know and are familiar with, we could say, you know, there's the five senses, there's the sixth uh, consciousness, which is the kind of meta consciousness of, of our mind. And then there's a seventh consciousness uh, beyond that, which is like a storehouse consciousness. You know, maybe we could think of the seventh as that kind of unconscious out of which we suddenly remember what we're going to do, or um, we remember the lyrics to a song. It's like a a personal unconscious. And then beyond that, there's another um, kind of storehouse which somewhat uh, is parallel to the Jungian collective unconscious. But you call it a storehouse. And so how, if, are you familiar with the Akashic records and the concept yeah, exactly. of that? Is it yeah. similar to that? 
Yeah, that would the eighth consciousness would be parallel to Akashic records. Okay. All right. So, yeah, see, I, this is what I try to do. I try to stitch everything together for people and let, let them see how the, the, the belief structures overlap because they, they all do in some way, right? Yeah, they do. Yeah. So, okay. So we have that sense now. We, we have a sense that you may or may not come back. And if you do, it's probably as a version of the soul, but not the exact soul. The Dalai Lama is a Buddhist, yes? Yes. Okay. So uh, the practice of going to find the Dalai Lama and is about the practice of finding the child that remembers who they were. And, and yet they're going to be new and different because they're a child in a new place, born to a new family and experiencing new things and things like that. Got that. What else do I need to know about Buddhism? I'm, I'm sure there are, there are some tenets, right? Well, um, I guess that we start out with the, the first tenets, which is the Four Noble Truths the, the, that Buddha taught, right, um, as he got up from the, the Bodhi tree, you know, and his first teaching as he walked into the world, into the village, and, and began turning the wheel of the Dharma. So the, the Four Noble Truths, which is that there is suffering, you know, dukkha, and uh, dukkha, the image of dukkha is a little bit like um a wheel um that in uh that is um wobbling when attached to the axle you know so like dissatisfactoriness and then the second truth is that that um dukkha is is caused by uh, desire anger and ignorance then um there the third truth is that there's a way out of that suffering and the way out of that suffering is the eightfold path um, sort of uh, right action, uh, right intention, right livelihood, right mindfulness, most of all. You know, through right mindfulness, then we can set our life on the right track and reduce the suffering for ourselves and others. And so then um, that, that takes, um, you know, innumerable different elaborations in the different vehicles across the continents. In, in India, during the Buddha's lifetime, um, there was um, a, a oral history that was being passed forth by his disciples. And his disciples themselves also had different philosophical backgrounds, and they heard and resonated with the teaching in different ways. So even in the time of the Buddhist life, um, the Dharma was not a, a singular uh, teaching, but it was really multiple. And each one of the Buddha's disciples had the power to ordain their own students. So then out of that, and, and given also at the time, everything was oral history. Uh, the, the teaching was not yet written until about 300 years after the Buddha's death. Yeah, which is about what Christianity did too, somewhere around there. Yeah. Yay, oral traditions. So... <laughs> So out of that, then Buddhism passed from India to what, what was called the Gandhara Kingdom, which was um, uh, now um, that the area that is now Pakistan and Afghanistan. And in that kind of frontier region, it was it was connecting with some of the Greek philosophers. There were connections between the uh, teaching of prajna, non-dual wisdom, in the Buddhist tradition and some of the Gnostics or the Stoics in, in Greece. And, and, and there was also a mixing of medicines along the Silk Road so that some of the traditional medicine of um, the, the, the 
Buddhist um, dharanis, which were mantras that were used to evoke sacred power, uh, these were um, shared with people of other traditions. Ultimately, also the traditional medicines, Ayurvedic medicine was being passed by the monks who traveled from India uh, to other places and countries because it was the monks, um, unlike the Brahmins, who were able to minister to everyone without being worried about impurity. You made a comment, it was a little while ago, um, but before we get to that, I want to mention that we did do some talking about non-dual healing uh, in episode 125 with uh, Jason Schulman. So if you want to hear more about that, you can check out that episode. Um, but the, I, always wanted, I always want to talk to Buddhists about the concept of desire, because uh, you know, I have some thoughts about it and, and what I've heard is in conflict with those, 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 um, things. So, um, tell me about how desire creates suffering. It's uh, human nature to want what we don't have or to not want what we do have or to experience the imbalance of the five senses, right? We're too hot. We're too cold. We're restless. Um, we're tired, or um, we are in the presence of those who we we don't have a warm feeling for, or we're separated from those that we love. Those are some kind of the good categories for dukkha. So it's it's not um, even so much the, the feeling that we have as our attachment to the feeling that we want things to be permanent and stable, and they never are. Okay, so that's the discernment, that's the delineation piece, because this is what I talk to people about a lot. So they're like, well, desire is bad. I'm like, no, desire itself is not bad. The attachment to having the thing that you desire, that's what creates the problem, right? Yeah, because desire itself is a motivator in a lot of cases. Very true. And, and without some kind of basic desire, um, we wouldn't have the will to live. Right, yeah. So it's not it's not that Buddhism says that all desire is bad. It's it's that the attachment to having that which we desire is what can create suffering. Yes. Okay. All right. I just wanted to clarify that like over and over again because I hear this thing said wrong so many times that I was like, no, I'm just going to go to the source here. <laughs> I'm just going to go to somebody who actually has a clue and 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 get it once and for all because um, I do hear people say that you know, oh, you have to give up all your desires. So it's like. Not exactly, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, so tell me, why did you decide to take this path as opposed to another spiritual path? Because when I heard the Buddhist teaching, it actually was like um, hearing something that I always believed. It, it was recognizing a, a, a sense of being spiritually at home. Ah. So one might say that that a prior version of your spirit has walked this path before, perhaps many times. Yeah, I think so. Ah, uh, okay. Did I say that well? Is That's that... good. That's very okay, good. good. All right, I'm trying. Um, so that that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I can relate to that because, you know, shamanism and, and ritual and things, the, the work that I do now is, again, I had a similar experience where it was, it just showed up and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I know this, I intuitively understand this, you know, there's a lot that I, I learned, but there's a lot more that I didn't learn and I just knew, right? Right. 
Yeah. And so that makes perfect sense. And I find that when I talk to people who are committed to their paths in the way that you're committed to yours and I'm committed to mine. Um, I often find that that's the case. It's like, Oh yeah, we've done this many times and you know, we don't know how to do anything else. Right. <laughs> it's, it's just like, I, I tried to do other things and it just didn't work out. Right. It's like every time there was a roadblock. Right. So, okay. So um, anything else you feel like we absolutely have to know about Buddhism before we wrap up the episode? Um, I would say that, it, that as we um, come to look into ourselves and uh, get to know ourselves, like that's our treasure. And, and that level of self-insight is a benefit no matter what religion we identify with. And so from that perspective, um, the practice of meditation or the practice of mindfulness is not dependent upon religion, but perhaps part of those original operating instructions that we all were born with. Awesome. So uh, usually at the end of every episode, Joey, you would usually ask me to do a, uh, a Kellyism, which is a, a short summing up of, of some mindful thought for the day. Uh, I'm going to ask you if you would do that. Um, and I'm going to put you on the spot because I didn't warn you about this. So I'm going to talk a little bit so you have a chance to think. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, if, if you would offer that up, and then we'll talk about how people can learn more about what you do. Sure. Um, this is a poem from Rick Fields, uh, a Buddhist teacher who said, this world originally, it's pure as is, you know, beneath the anger, pain, beyond that, sadness, then compassion, and beyond that, the vast sky. You know, so that in the heart of this, there's a confidence in that original nature that we all have that's um, clear and pure and that we can all access um, by uh, tapping into our inner knowing. Awesome. Awesome. So um, so you mentioned your book, Field of Dreams, right? Um, Field of Blessings. Field of Blessings. I'm sorry. I'm going back to Kevin Costner. I was like, wait, that ain't right. Field of blessings. This is what happens when I scroll through my my episode list and don't have the thing in front of me. So you have a book called Field of Blessings, and you also have a, a retreat coming up, right? That's right. And that's the Zen Practice for Transformative Times retreat? Yes, it's going to be on Zoom so that people can uh, jump on no matter where they live or what time zone they're in. It is Saturday, November 13th. Okay. And um, are you recording that in case they can't make that time? I believe we are. Okay. And so they can find out more information. Uh, I've, I've put a Zoom link uh, or a, a Bitly link rather in the show notes for, for y'all if you want to, to sign in for that. And um, Chi Hung's uh, website is also on there and it's www.mountainpath.org. And so uh, can they find information, more information about the retreat on, on your website or just on the, the uh, bit.ly link? The, the bit.ly, uh, certainly. I, I'm not sure if it's on my website. Okay. All right. So go to the bit.ly link if you want the retreat. Go to the website if you want more information. Thank you so much for, for joining me again and being so generous with your time. I so appreciate you. I know our listeners do. I'm honored uh, to be invited, and I'm deeply appreciative of the good work that you continue to do. Thank you for hosting. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for this week. 
Tune in next time when I share another episode on how to tap into energy, magic, and the spirit world. I'm Kelly Sparta, here with Jihung Padma, and you have been listening to Spirit Sherpa. So long, everyone. Loving you and knowing you share with a condition. Each mile I travel over 13,000 hours. Spirit Trippa is the sole property of Kelly Sparta Enterprises and is distributed under a Creative Commons BY-NC-ND 4.0 license. For more information about this licensing, please go to www.creativecommons.org. Any requests for deviations to this licensing should be sent to kelly at kellysparta.com. To sign up for or get more information on the programs, offerings, and services referenced in this episode, please go to www.kellysparta.com. This episode of Spirit Sherpa has been produced by Honey Voice Productions with post production by Christopher Wright. Into my home and my love and my life and me. Are you waking up to the spiritual world and realizing that you have no idea what you're doing? But you feel like you kind of probably should, especially since you seem to be seeing things and feeling things and having things see you that maybe aren't so great and that you might want to actually control your experience of that. Well, I have great news for you because our Welcome to the Woo program does just that for you. It teaches you how to hold your energy field, manage your energy field, clear your energy field, protect your energy field, and learn how to protect your space And you learn how to do basic divination and talk to your guides so that you feel like you actually have a clue and have a way to talk to the guides that will help you to figure everything else out. And it teaches you how to make sure that you feel mentally, emotionally, and energetically safe. That means that we also deal with things like fear and anxiety and worry and dread and self-doubt and inner and outer judgments. And we help you build a foundation of self-support and courage. All of these things together create a solid sense of safety in your own life. They will reduce your stress levels in half, guaranteed. So visit the website at kellysparta.com and find out more about the Welcome to the Woo program. Your future awaits.